Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Hear now the word of the living God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This is the word of Christ, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated and let's pray together. Almighty God, now we pray that in this brief time of the preaching of your word, you might nourish our souls, convict us, we ask. Point us again to your glorious grace. And we pray that you might instruct our hearts by the Spirit, through the word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, writing to a protege in ministry, three chapters on what it is like and what is necessary for the proper ordering of the church and the leading of the people of God. And one of the many ways that you could summarize the book of Titus might be like this. Right doctrine leads to right living. Correct doctrine leads to correct living or proper living. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through the beginning of our text, after discussing the qualifications for elders and the work of elders, this work that Paul envisions Titus doing on the island of Crete, Paul then makes the bold statement through multiple verses that right doctrine leads to right living. But if I were to say to you, what does the grace of God do? What might you say? For many of us, we might say, well, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Others of us might say, well, God has been gracious to me every day. I mean, every day I have life and breath and food to eat and a roof over my head. This is all God's grace. Or you might say, well, in God's common grace, Christians and non-Christians alike in our country generally live together in a sense of peace. And in God's common grace, Things function and society is generally ordered. You see, grace has a lot of components that the scriptures speak of. And of course, there are aspects of grace that are in the New Testament. But I want us to look tonight specifically at saving grace, saving grace and see three simple things. Perhaps we could say that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul describes the school of grace. The school of grace. Let's begin our journey then. The first thing that I want us to see together tonight, beloved, is that saving grace appeared to us. Saving grace appeared to us. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. There it is. That point was... Not necessarily all that creative. It's exactly what the text says. The grace of God that brings salvation. So this is saving grace has appeared to us. 
This is God's unmerited or unearned favor that the sinner has. This is God's saving grace. And notice it has appeared to us. This is something that has come outside of ourselves. One translator renders it this way. God's favor has appeared with saving power. God's favor has appeared with saving power. You see, when we weren't looking for salvation, God made it appear to us. When history was moving along and with only a small group of Hebrews in the Middle East trusting in the promises of God, when most of the world wasn't looking for it, the grace of God appeared and it has brought salvation to all who have faith in his name. But notice it says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The message of God's saving favor, his unearned favor, is for any who will have it. It bears repeating here in this place tonight that if you desire God's grace, if you want to be freed from your sins and have forgiveness of sins, you can have it. God's saving grace that brings salvation has appeared to all people. Notice this passage, which really is one long sentence in the original language, discusses life between the two appearings, doesn't it? Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then there is some discussion of what it does. And then in verse 13, what do we read? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage is really bookended by God's work in making things appear to us. Commentator Bill Mounts writes this on this passage, quote, Christ's first coming is a manifestation of God's grace, verse 11. His second coming shows God's glory, verse 13. Verses 11 and 12 spell out in detail the twofold aspect of Christ's coming, a denial of sinful ways and an appeal to live righteously. This same negative and positive presentation is repeated in verse 14, which speaks of Christ himself giving himself to redeem believers from lawlessness and to cleanse a people who would be zealous for good works. God's saving grace or said in the way that it is here, God's grace that brings salvation has appeared to us. It's from outside of us. We weren't looking for it. And God caused his grace in the face of his son to appear. And that's the first thing that we can say from this text about grace. Saving grace appeared to us. Listen, friend, if if you're a believer, there was a moment in your life where God's grace took root in your soul by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you heard the message of Christ a thousand times, or maybe it was the first time that you heard it. But you heard the preaching of the word or you read the word on a gospel track or someone explained it to you in Sunday school or an airplane ride. And it was clear to you. God made clear to you, to your very soul, that his grace for you was available in the person and work of his son. And of course, anytime we discuss saving grace, we must say it is God's doing and it has appeared to us. But one of the things about saving grace that we don't often think about is not simply that it appeared to us, but that it trains us. 
It trains us. And that's the second thing that our text speaks to tonight. Saving grace trains us. Hence the title for the sermon. We have come as believers to the school of grace. Look at verse 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is pictured as bringing education to God's people. Now, boys and girls, God's grace is not a substance that's floating out in the air. It's not like water. It's not like oxygen. You can just try to get as much of it as as you can. But here, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that it's essentially by God's grace that we are taught, that we are educated in denying sins. Again, grace is pictured as a, a teacher, as something that brings education to God's people. Listen to John Calvin, the 1500s reformer, speaking on this text. Quote, Paul means that God's grace should instruct us so that we live the right sort of lives. Some are all too quick to use the preaching of God's mercy as an excuse for licentiousness, while carelessness keeps other people from thinking about the renewal of their lives. But the revelation of God's grace necessarily brings with it exhortations to a godly life. End quote. You see, God's grace, his saving grace, has appeared to the sinner. We're saved by grace through faith. And it is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. But saving grace trains us. Now how does it train us? How does it teach us? Look at verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Again, notice the way that it's constructed. It's almost as if grace is the teacher. Grace is the teacher. Notice the key element here, teaching us that denying ungodliness, unworldly lust. That word denying could be translated denying, disowning, repudiating. We're turning our backs on ungodliness and worldly lusts. And God's saving grace in the face of Jesus Christ is what is teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Ungodliness could be those outward behaviors that we used to walk in as unbelievers, those sins that we used to cherish. But in addition to ungodliness and outward behaviors, perhaps, there is the phrase here, worldly lusts. These would be inward sinful desires. You see, Christianity, following Christ, being saved, is not freedom from inward sinful desires and temptations but a radical call with the Spirit's aid to deny our sinful desires. What do I mean by that? We are freed, of course, from the reign of sin. But when a person becomes a Christian, boys and girls, when a person trusts Jesus as their Savior, it doesn't mean that all of their inward desires go away for sin. It it doesn't mean that they're no longer tempted. But what it does mean is that now they are able to say no to sin. And it means that believers are not identified by their inward desires. 
Well, the last few weeks, our teenage Sunday school class has been talking about various topics of living in a postmodern world. In the last two weeks, we've been talking about some of those very sensitive issues that are happening in our society, even today. Issues which five or ten years ago, we would have said, I'm not sure that will ever be upon us. And yet here it is. Gender issues, the redefinition of marriage. And what we see in our society is that people are regularly saying, we are identified by our inward desires. You see, the Christian message, the message that we are taught because of the grace of God, is that we deny, we repudiate, we disown, we put down sinful desires or worldly lusts, as the text says. The early church father Chrysostom comments on this passage when he writes this, quote, See here the foundation of all virtue. He has not said avoiding, but denying. Denying implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred and aversion. You see, now we begin to hate the worldly lusts that we used to love to feed because of God's grace. How is it that grace chains us? How is it that grace teaches us? When God's grace appeared to us, it brought about a change in our hearts. The Spirit brought about a change, uniting us to Christ by faith. And now as we reflect on God's grace, love for Christ and his ways begin to consume us in such a way that the desires that we used to love to feed become less Lovely to us. But notice, grace is pictured as teaching us not only to deny certain things, but to embrace certain things. Look there at verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Puritans would speak of a verse like this in two words. Mortification, killing something. And vivification, causing something to be enlivened. Notice that all throughout the New Testament, there are these passages where we are told to put sin to death and to feed and fuel other kinds of things. Here, we are to live soberly, righteously and godly lives. Mortification and vivification. You see, you might be thinking to yourself, I come to church and there's generally a happy spirit these days in the church and people are encouraged in this way or that way. And I'm just sitting in my pew thinking this has been a horrible week. I've wrestled with this sin. I almost gave into this particular temptation this past week. If my closest friends at church knew the thoughts that were in my heart and my mind. And you begin to say to yourself, it seems as if Christianity actually is a war. I would submit to you, the Holy Spirit of God is at work in your soul. Because you see, Christianity is, at the same time, the appearance of God's grace. And being completely, in a very instantaneous moment, identified with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet it is a life, isn't it? Where we are being trained by the very grace that saved us. To deny the worldly lusts that are within us. To mortify the deeds of the flesh. And to embrace lives that are sober 
and righteous and godly. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell, while discussing this passage, writes these words, quote, they are not the means to get God. Rather, they are a consequence of the appearance of grace that is God in Christ. When Isaiah saw the majesty and holiness of God, the prophet fell down and cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, the deliverer of God's people hid his face. Paul expects the effect of seeing God so clearly in the grace revealed through Christ Jesus to affect us no differently. When we have seen God clearly in the appearance of his grace, we have an intense awareness of our unholiness. Grace in this context trains us, as Paul says in the opening phrase of this verse. A true apprehension of grace instructs us of the magnitude and repugnance of our sin. Brothers and sisters, many of us could testify to the fact that we feel like there are days where we see more sin in our lives than we did last year or the year before. Part of the challenge for us is that more and more of our sins actually bother us. I mean, I mean, think about your walk with Christ. It's been 10 years, 20 years, two days. Think about how sometimes you're now sensitive to things as it relates to sin that you didn't used to be sensitive to. See, we're being grown in the grace of God that saves us. Saving grace appeared to us, but saving grace trains us. Every day we deny sinful passions and we live in self-controlled, reverent ways. And when we see that we don't, we repent, leaning on Christ. We move forward. There is a school of grace. But, but Paul would say at least one other thing about God's saving grace here. It has appeared to us. It does train us. But thirdly, it changes our focus. Saving grace changes our focus. Look at the latter part of our text, verse 13. We've seen that grace has appeared. We've seen that we're being taught to mortify and to vivify or to deny and to live unto. And then look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you look for these days? I don't, I don't mean, do you actually stare in the sky and wait to see the Lord Jesus return, although perhaps that wouldn't be inappropriate from time to time. What I mean is, where is your focus? This text teaches us that one of the realities of a person that has been saved by grace is that in addition to being increasingly frustrated by remaining sin, their focus shifts further and further and further away from the things of this world. And that may wax and wane. There may be seasons of great heat where you would say, in this portion of my Christian life, I simply long for Christ to return more and more and more. And these days, I wish that I could go back to that. And of course, there are periods of cooling and periods of great heat in the Christian life. But over the course of the life of the Christian, our focus changes. We increasingly look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing 
Now, I want you to see this word, boys and girls, the word hope. This word hope here doesn't mean, well, I hope that that happens. I really would love for that to happen. Not sure if it's going to happen, but I would love for that to happen. That's how we use the word hope regularly in our day. But here, hope is a fixed reality. The hope is the appearing of the Son of God. The hope is the glorious appearing. That's where all of our hopes are placed. We're looking for the blessed hope. You could say the blessed reality of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And notice in the midst of this discussion, a reference to the divinity of Christ. Jesus is pictured as being the great God and Savior. And the Christian life is marked by... A focus that is constantly aware that Christ is coming, that his kingdom is coming, that he brings with him the saints who have gone before, that there is going to be an ultimate crushing of all evil that remains visibly and tangibly. And that Christians who are suffering, who are hurting, who are weak of faith, who are doubting, who are wrestling will in a moment be freed from it all. You see, God's saving grace over the course of our lives changes our focus. More and more and more are we dissatisfied with the things of this earth. More and more and more is our gaze fixed toward a future reality, specifically a person our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we're given a brief description in verse 14 of his work, aren't we? Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us. Just meditate on those five words this week. Jesus gave himself for me. You wake up one morning this week, you don't have time to read the Bible, you overslept. It's difficult getting out the door to work. The the kids are going every which way, schoolwork. All of that stuff. And you think, oh, I wish I had time to just pray and read. Christ gave himself for me. Let that fuel your meditations that day. At stoplights, at momentary breaks at work. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for me. What fuel there is in those five words. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Quickly, notice Jesus is described as giving himself for us. And this giving of himself was for several reasons. Number one, to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem us from breaking the law. To redeem us from being moral law breakers. To redeem us from hating the Ten Commandments with our lives. That's why he gave himself for me. That's why he gave himself for you. To redeem you. To buy you out of that lawlessness. But notice, he also gave himself for us in order to purify for himself his own special people. Jesus gave himself in the place of wicked sinners, that he might then take of those sinners and make for himself a special people. 
Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, there's a lot of theological answers that you could give. But he died on the cross to save you from lawlessness. He died on the cross to make you part of his special people. There's at least another reason in this text, verse 14. He gave himself thirdly that we might be what? Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. When's the last time you thought of yourself as someone who was zealous for good works? I mean, aren't zealots people that we need to say, could you, could you calm down just a little bit? And here and in places like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we're described as people who were made as a people to walk in good works or to be zealous for good works. In this context, even two verses before, what are we to do? Live in certain ways, soberly, righteously, godly. Jesus hung on a cross to redeem me from my lawlessness, to purify me, to make me his own special person, and that I might be zealous for good works. You see, if these things are true about Jesus and what he's done for me in giving himself for me, doesn't that cause me to long more and more and more to want to see him? Notice that what we are called to in grace in verses 12 and 13 is described with different words in the same way in verse 14 as that which Jesus gave himself for. Isn't that interesting? Paul says in verses 12 and 13, do these things, don't do these things. And then the foundation is, oh, by the way, Christ gave himself for you that you might do these things. You might be freed from these things. Christian, Jesus gave himself for you so that you would deny internal lusts. He gave himself for you to purify you from ungodly living. He gave himself for you. He died for you so that you would be living unto him. And this changes our focus. Now verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. The way that that's rendered in English, almost verbatim the way that you could say that it's rendered in the underlying Greek language. It's a descripting kind of Verb, a participle, if you will, looking for the blessing hope. This is, this is the way that we're described. As we live, we live by looking. And the looking is what? For the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Now, interestingly enough, in verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What is notable about the second appearing? The word glorious. Oh, make no mistake, the first coming, the first appearing of the Son of God was glorious. Who can forget the angels lining the heavens, singing and saying to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. 
But all throughout the pages of the New Testament, the promise of Christ's second coming comes with this bold declaration that there is a glory there that we know not of yet. The glorious appearing. The glory of God will be manifested when Christ returns and we look and we live unto that glory. Just a a few examples. Turn over to Mark. Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 26. Listen to the way that the Lord Christ describes that day. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest parts of the earth. To the farthest parts of heaven. Can you imagine that day? We don't. We know not of what it will be like. But our streets might be filled with all kinds of riots. Our street might be filled with all kinds of parades celebrating all kinds of evil. People might still be standing outside of court buildings because they want to kill unborn children. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, with all of His glory, will return. And in that moment, the angels will be sent out to gather the elect from the four winds, boys and girls, all believers, together, seeing Christ face to face. And it will be as if All of the evil of this world will fall away in an instant because King Jesus will be seen by all those that love him and those that hate him. And there's a glory there that we are looking towards. One other passage, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians also describes this glorious appearing. But in different words, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to the way that it's described there. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction when the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And then notice this, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, Did you see what Paul is saying there to the church at Thessalonica? That the day is going to be a day when the saints will glorify the Son. It will be a glorious appearing. And he will be admired, or some translations render that, marveled at. Christian, there will not be one single lust that you wish that you had engaged when that day comes. 
There will not be one single temptation that you wish that you had toyed with a little bit longer when you see his face. The glory of that day will far surpass any kind of passing pleasure that you give yourself in the midst of sin and ungodliness. And this is what saving grace does. Not only does God save us and unite us to the Son, but we are being trained and taught that we live no longer these ways, but in these ways. And constantly our focus is shifted. And as our focus is shifted, that day and who will appear that day becomes so crucial that sometimes even the strongest desires for sin that still remain in our hearts, we want to deny more and more. Every year at Thanksgiving, we have a quite a feast in our house. We get up early. There are all kinds of preparations to be made. A lot of times there are a lot of people that will be at the table with us. Of course, I'm sure many of your homes are like this. And one of the things that I try to do all day, with the exception of coffee, of course, is to avoid snacking too much. And we don't usually eat until 1 or 2 o'clock, so of course there's a hunger there. But sometimes it's, well, I could just eat a little bit here. I mean, I'm hungry, and let me just have this. And and you know what happens? As I try to press through and wait for all of the turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and whatever else the rest of you eat. (laughs) When that moment comes, I don't say to myself, as I'm seated at that table with wonderful meal in front of me, I don't say to myself, boy, I really wish I had had a few more crackers this morning. Well, I really wish that I had eaten an extra donut at 6 o'clock. Actually, I'm kind of glad that I didn't eat too much of those things because this is the meal. This is what the whole day has been about. It's been getting to this point. The Christian life is like that. The temptations will come. The worldly lusts will still remain. But our focus changes. Such that we can say, not only have I been saved by the grace of God and the face of Jesus Christ, that same grace is constantly pointing me to the fact that I will see his face. And because I know that there's coming a day when beyond the shadow of a doubt, he will see me and I will see him. Sin becomes less and less and less desirable. And some days the desire to sin is so very strong. Is it not, beloved? But God's grace is training us, changing our focus for the day that we see his face. So Paul can say in verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Titus Remind the saints there in Crete, that island that is full of unruliness. All the new believers there on the island of Crete, remind them, saving grace appeared. It's training us. And it's changing our focus. Let's pray. Almighty God, help your people this week to look unto that day. To be trained, as it were, by your grace. Denying worldly lusts and ungodliness and living soberly, righteously in godly lives in this present age. Help us, O Lord, 
that we might live unto you in preparation for that day when our King of kings and Lord of lords will be seen and marveled at by all who, as the Scriptures say, love His appearing. We pray that you would hasten that day. Give us a resolve in our souls to love Christ more in the week ahead such that we want to put down even the strongest of temptations and lusts in our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's sing together.